Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to die for, to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. Well, I don't know if you recognise that song, but these are a couple of verses of a very famous song, an old song written in 1971, but I'm guessing that you still might know it because it is so famous. According to Wikipedia, Imagine by John Lennon is in the top 100 most performed songs of the 20th century. It was written during the Vietnam War and it expresses a kind of desperate disillusionment at the world and all the suffering in it. And I think the reason it's such a classic that continues to be so popular even to this day is that it echoes our yearning for a future where there's hope, where war and killing and suffering are no more. The trouble is, as noble as those dreams are, that's all I'll ever be, a pipe dream, as long as we look to ourselves and our ability to change the world ourselves. The blurb on the website that promoted the song Imagine concluded by saying, Imagine is all about liberation and something we must all believe in if we want to make a better place for humanity. But sadly, history has shown that no amount of belief in liberation or attempts to transform society by peace or violence have ever been able to rid the world of sin and evil. The dream for a future without wars and violence and evil is a wonderful dream. In fact, it's a God-given dream. And it's a dream that has a God-given solution. Human efforts to provide a future where things are made right have all failed miserably. But our passage today in Revelation 21 shows us how God has given us a future where all things will be made new. He will perform radical surgery on the world by making a new beginning with no more death no more mourning, and God will live with his people forever in the new Jerusalem. Well, let's pray. Father, we look forward, we look at this world around us and we are tempted to despair. History repeating itself with the Taliban taking over again in Afghanistan, your people being hounded and persecuted in so many parts of the world, the pandemic causing untold suffering, especially to the poor and vulnerable. We long for an end to suffering. And we ourselves long to be free of our own struggles with sin so that we can know you fully and walk with you without anything in the way. Thank you that Revelation 21 gives us a future where all things will be made new and made right. Speak to us today, we pray. Amen. 
Well, our first point today is that God is bringing a new beginning. In verses 1 to 4, John sees a new heaven and a new earth. Have a look with me at verses 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. This is the new creation. In a sense, it's like winding back the clock to the first creation, but it's different too. In Genesis, in the first creation, there was a sea, but here there's no sea. And there was no city, no Jerusalem. Instead, there was a garden. The difference is that the new creation was good. Human beings in harmony with creation, in harmony with God, the garden full of good things to enjoy. But it also had the potential for things to go pear-shaped for the man and the woman to disobey God, the serpent in the garden there to deceive them. And, of course, those things all happened, didn't they? But here in creation 2.0, God has made them all right. There's no serpent, no Satan, no Babylon. We saw a moment ago that there's no sea. In Jewish thought, the sea represented chaos and danger. It was where Rahab the sea monster lived. King David in the Psalms said the deep waters almost covered him, meaning he was drowning in sin and trouble. In the new creation, all that is gone. And gone are everything that brings misery and suffering because God himself has taken them away. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. We saw last week that death has been defeated and thrown into the lake of fire. Death came into the world with Adam when he ate the fruit. But now the curse has been undone and sin and evil have been destroyed. Last week we saw how Satan and his offside of Babylon, the great prostitute, that city of evil that stands against God and persecutes his people, these great forces have all been defeated and with them suffering and sorrow have also been done away with. But the most wonderful thing about this new creation is what we see in verse 3. The dwelling place of God is now with people. The word is literally pitching his tent. God pitches his tent with us. It's the same word that is used for the tabernacle in the desert when the Israelites came out of Egypt with Moses. And it's also the word used to describe Jesus in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. The word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. 
But in John's Gospel, it says that the world did not recognise Jesus. The difference in the new creation is that God's people are joined to Jesus, the Lamb, in marriage. He is their God. He is their husband. We are his bride. And the Father's name is written on our foreheads. Friends, that's the future that we have to look forward to if you trust in Jesus. I think we all instinctively find things to look forward to to keep us going. When we were home from Taiwan on home assignment, uh, towards the end of our time, I would count down the days before we flew back. I really miss Taiwan. I love the mountains, the cheap uh, street food, uh, the people. For some reason, I conveniently forget the bad parts, the stifling heat, the pollution, the noise. I would look forward to going back, getting on that plane and going back. One of the hard things about the pandemic now is that we don't know what the future thing, future brings, so it's hard to find things to look forward to, isn't it? Who knows when we'll be able to travel again? And that's only out of Sydney, let alone getting on a plane and going overseas. But what we do know for sure is that this picture in Revelation 21 is our future. When we look forward to something, a holiday, a new job, the weekend, so often it's kind of tinged with disappointment, isn't it? Yeah, it's nice, but and it often doesn't quite deliver all that we'd hoped for, all that it promises to do. But the new creation won't be like that. It's often hard for us to see it clearly now, but all of our longings, all of our needs for relationship and love and security and meaning that send us um, endlessly searching, all of those things find the end in God. The end of the journey is in him. He meets our every need because he is our creator. One hard thing about the lockdown has been that it's put cracks in our relationships. We're either too close to people that we crammed up against in the same four walls 24-7, or we're too far from each other, cut off. Uh, we can't see each other. Our own interaction is a message on Zoom or, or a message on WhatsApp or a Zoom call, which we're all so sick of, sick of. So we can feel isolated and claustrophobic at the same time. But our future in the new creation is with a perfect family, with God at the centre. His love is never stifling. We will never again feel isolated or lonely. We will be the people we are made to be, the people of God, the bride of the Lamb. No more crying, no more pain, no more dread of death or disease, for the former things have passed away. In the next section, verses 5 to 8, Jesus himself gives an invitation. Actually, it's stronger than that. He urges us to make sure that we are part of the new creation. He does that by promising free water for the thirsty. And that's our second point. 
Let's have a look at verses 5 to 7. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. We know this is Jesus calling because we've heard him called the Alpha and the Omega before, back in Revelation 1. They are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And he goes on to explain that he is the beginning and the end. He has always existed because he is God. It was by his word that the world was brought into existence. It was his hands that flung stars into space. And so when he says he is making a new creation, making everything new, we know that he has the power and the authority to do that. Jesus the Lamb is also the creator God. And he is also the one who can satisfy our thirst. And so he calls us to come to him and drink from the spring of the water of life, which is another way of saying being with him in the new creation. Then we're told this will be the future of those who are victorious. Well, before we look at what that means, let's look at another group of people in verse 8. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Jesus is contrasting two groups of people as both an encouragement and a warning. Make sure you come and drink living water and are victorious, he is saying. Make sure you are not cowardly and unbelieving. We've seen before in Revelation that the people who would have read this letter that John wrote in the early church faced persecution from the Roman Empire. They face the temptation to deny their faith and so avoid punishment or death. The victorious were those who stood firm and kept trusting Jesus. The cowardly were those who caved in and denied their faith so that they could save their skin. But friends, we've seen throughout Revelation that it's also a word to Christians down through the ages. And this encouragement and warning is just as much a word to us as it was to the early Christians. Jesus is also calling us to drink water from him that satisfies, to find our deepest needs in him alone. But our problem is that we're all prone to wandering. We're all prone to wandering from him and finding satisfaction in the wrong places. In the book of Jeremiah, God also talks there about drinking water as a picture for trusting God. In Jeremiah 2.13, he says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the springs of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. Those in the early church who denied their faith 
didn't trust God to look after them. And for us, it's easy for us to forget to trust God in a lot of different ways and to find satisfaction in the wrong places so that we can easily dig our own cisterns that don't hold water. I want to suggest two areas that I think we're in danger of doing that, particularly at this time during lockdown. Now, this isn't going to apply to everyone, so if this isn't you, then feel free to take a breather for the next couple of minutes. But for a number of us, myself included, looking to quench our thirst and find satisfaction in two areas, entertainment and comfort, I think are a danger. Now, relaxation and doing things to unwind are good and important for mental health and balance. But it's easy to find for Netflix binging, playing video games online, perhaps letting your guard down late at night, watching porn or, or stuff that you know is dodgy. Those things can easily replace God as the place that we go to to find satisfaction and comfort and to meet our needs. And similarly for comfort. It's particularly tempting, I think, with the news around uh, going from bad to worse, COVID numbers going up and up, people becoming more narky on social media. Perhaps your temper is getting jaded at home as well. It's tempting to kind of go in on ourselves and to look for comfort in cocooning ourselves off from the world with little distractions, with little luxuries, switching off from life and looking to those things instead of to God as our comfort and as our protector. It's so easy to drink from broken cisterns that don't hold water. But, friends, listen to the warning. Keep trusting in Jesus and look to him as your satisfaction, your comfort and your protector. And we know in our heart of hearts that these other things don't really satisfy. But the Alpha and Omega, the creator God who is the lamb who was slain for you, is holding out his hands to you to come and drink from him and find living water. If you're lonely, your future is a place where God will dwell with you face to face forever. If you are suffering in the new creation, Jesus will wipe away your tears. If you are broken and in pain from past hurts, then you have a future where all things will be made right and wrongs will be made right. Well, the scene then moves to a focus on the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And that's our third point. It's called the bride, the wife of the lamb in verse 9. And then let's pick it up from verse 11. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. These were the three gate. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, 
three on the south and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. It's a strange way to describe the bride of the Lamb, the people of God, as a city. But Jerusalem in the Old Testament was where God dwelt with his people, the city of God. And that's a picture here. The 12 tribes of Israel are written on the gates, verse 12, and the, as well as the names of the apostles, Jesus' disciples, written on the city wall, verse 14. So what we have here is all of God's people together from the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a beautiful city. Its brilliance, its brilliance is like a precious jewel. Babylon was human culture gone wrong. This is redeemed culture. And later on it describes the new Jerusalem as being built of gold and precious stones. Each of the 12 gates was a huge pearl. Back in the Garden of Eden, in the first creation, there's just a short mention of gold as well. In Genesis 2, one of the rivers in the garden winds through a land where there is gold in the ground. Here in the new creation, gold has been worked and fashioned into a beautiful city. The new creation isn't just a return to, Genesis, to the garden. It's a perfected version of it. God has made a new beginning, but this is an even better beginning. Apart from it being made of gold and pearls, this is no ordinary city. This is a city to end all cities. We, we don't really get um, a picture um, of its size. It talks about being 12,000 stadia squares. We don't talk in stadia anymore. But the footnotes tell us that that, that, was the, that meant that it was 2,200 kilometres long, wide and high. This was a gigantic cube, and each side of the cube is the distance from Adelaide to Brisbane. Imagine that. Imagine a city that size. When John was writing this letter, that would have gone, um, that distance, 2,200 kilometres, would have gone from one end of the known world to the other. So in the minds of the early readers, it would have covered the whole world. And that seems to be the idea of this vision. The new Jerusalem of God's people covering the whole earth. But what really gives this city its glory, much more than the glittering gold and precious stones, is the presence of God. Have a look at verses 22 to 25 with me. I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The original Jerusalem was famous for its temple. God's people loved to go there because it represented the place where God dwelt with his people. But in the new Jerusalem, there will be no temple because God will be there himself, pitching his tent with us. 
And God is so full of perfection and splendor and glory that the city doesn't need any lights. We're also told that lights aren't needed for another reason, because there will be no night. Now, night for ancient people was when evil people hid and committed violent and evil acts. It was a time of fear and even death. It was a time when people didn't go outside but shut themselves indoors. In the New Jerusalem, the Lamb has taken away the darkness. Because of his presence, the things that darkness represents are no more. I wonder what darkness represents for you. Fear of the unknown, sickness, suffering, growing old perhaps, being lonely, cut off from loved ones. Perhaps it's even fear of yourself and who you are afraid of becoming. All those things are trampled underfoot by Jesus in the New Jerusalem. John Lennon sang, Imagine all the people living life in peace. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. A lovely dream, but a pipe dream if it's left up to us. But Revelation 21 shows us that a world without pain and war and sin and death is our wonderful future. Not because of human effort, something that we'll achieve, but because the Lamb of God will make all things right. He will make all things new. He will put all things right in our relationship with God and with each other and with the creation. We'll all be restored to the way that they are meant to be. That's a future worth waiting for. That's a future worth persevering for. That's a future worth trusting God for. That's a future worth singing songs of praises for that we're going to do now.